Roger, you're on mute, so I don't know if you're saying something interesting. I agree, Joel. <laughs> See, in fact, it was incredibly interesting. It was the most interesting thing he said all day. <laughs> Renal Physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm the Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight we are discussing Chapter 11, which continues our walk through acid-based physiology. And tonight we're going to get down into the molecular nitty-gritty and really take a look at renal hydrogen handling. Tonight's crew includes Roger. Roger Rodby from Rush University Medical Center, Chicago. JC. Juan Carlos Vélez. Nephrologist at Oxner Health in New Orleans. Happy to be back. Amy. Amy Yao. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Melanie. Melanie Honig. I'm at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Anna. Anna Gaddy. I'm at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Leticia. I'm Leticia and I'm at UCSF. And Josh. Hi, I'm Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Woohoo! <laughs> I know. No fellows in the crew. No fellows in the crew anymore. It's oh, good to see everybody I, all graduate. It's bound to happen if we go long enough. I had my you know? first in-person clinic, and I just want to find out, is it the second or the third or whenever when you stop waking up at three in the morning the following day to think about all your patients? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it ever goes away. Because that definitely happens. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> it doesn't go away. Okay, good. Amy, when are you going to Ohio? Uh, so my last day here is in November, like the first week of November, and then I start in January, so I have a little bit of time off. But oh, yeah, we're moving nice. now. I mean, we're looking at houses. Well, not moving, moving now, but like now. looking at houses and stuff like that. So mm-hmm, In yeah. Columbus, that's where you're going to be? expensive, the houses, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the housing, really? well, yeah, yeah everywhere. In Columbus? Like, expensive everywhere. It's crazy, but for what we want in a house, which is a big house, it's very expensive. <laughs> Okay, chapter 11, regulation of acid base. This is a long chapter. I am not prepared to do all of it. I got through renal hydrogen excretion. I guess that's all I got through. We'll see how it goes. The book starts with kind of a review. He kind of talks about our central acid base equation, which is the carbonic bicarbonate acid base system with hydrogen and bicarbonate combining to form carbonic acid and then breaking down into CO2 and water. And that he then kind of reviews what we went over last chapter where you can, with a kind of a law of mass action, you can get a hydrogen in equilibrium with PCO2 over bicarbonate. Or if you want to use, instead of hydrogen concentration, pH, you get our classic Henderson-Hasselbach formula. And then he reiterates how what is critical and what is so valuable about this carbonic acid system is that both the bicarb 
and the CO2 can be regulated independently and separate from just this equilibrium, which makes it much, much more powerful for maintaining uh, a stable hydrogen ion concentration. And to make that point, I mean, the pK of this uh, equation is 6.1 and buffers don't, buffers work best when the pK is closest to your physiologic pH. And that's not very close, but it doesn't matter because pCO2 is regulated. It's, it's, a, it's an open system and your pCO2 doesn't accumulate when you use a bicarbonate buffer. So it allowed the, the fact that you can blow off CO2, which is his whole point of it being regulated independently, allows this uh, system, which would not be a good buffer system, to be an excellent buffer system. Yeah. And then the next point, which I loved, and I think is super important, and I always kind of uh, focus on this, is just kind of getting a sense of the volumes of these acids that you deal with, that, that the metabolism of the carbohydrates and fats in our diet generates 15,000 millimoles of CO2 per day just this massive amount, while our metabolism of proteins and other ingested acids is only about uh, 50 to 100 millimoles of hydrogen a day. Just to give you a sense of just this incredible mismatch in terms of what the lungs ventilate versus what the kidneys excrete, right? Where they're just, they're not even close in terms of orders of magnitude. And then he drills down and says, well, when we say metabolism of proteins, what is actually generating the acid? And he's very specific. He talks about methionine and cysteine, which are the two sulfur-containing amino acids. And when they are metabolized, they generate sulfuric acid, which to completely neutralize that generates two hydrogen. He talks about arginine being metabolized to glucose plus urea plus a hydrogen ion. And then he says phosphates also generate phosphoric acid or H2PO4 negative, which is the other acid source. And, and he kind of isolates it. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about some amino acids, methionine, cysteine, arginine, or uh, the what do you call the cationic, the cationic, arginine and lysine, and then um, the phosphates. And the phosphates are for really pretty much from phospholipids. And I think that's a minor part, but it's still, you know, it's still part of it. We also have anionic amino acids that the metabolism of a produced bicarb. You know, I've been a nephrologist for, I don't know, 30 some years. It hasn't been 30 years that I knew that. You know, I might say it was 15 years that I learned that. And it's embarrassing. But, you know, all you really think about is production of protons. But there, you know, there are amino acids that, that also produce bicarb. It's just that there's a lot more of these cationic and sulfur-containing amino acids than there are the anionic amino acids, you know, glutamine and asperitine and the like. And, you know, if I can go on a second, it's, it's really interesting to me because if you look at protein, protein is about 12% cationic amino acids and about 3% sulfur-containing amino acids. And since sulfur is sulfuric acid, as you pointed out, Joel, and that produces two protons per amino acid, you can almost think of the sulfur-containing amino acids as being 6% if you're adding it from the standpoint of its contribution of, of protons. You've got 12% cationic and 6% sulfur. That's 18%. Yeah. And there's about 9% of proteins anionic amino acids. So it's about two to one. And I don't know why that is. I mean, why, why is, you know, I'm sure there's some evolutionary reason, whatever, that, that most, that our amino acids tend to be more proton producing than bicarb producing. But imagine if it were the other way around, you know, if we had two to one anionic amino acids to cationic and sulfur containing amino acids, we wouldn't need to acidify our urine. We wouldn't have chapter 10. We wouldn't have distal RTA because we'd be in the, always in a net base, positive base. Well, and it, do, it does depend on the diet. Like they always say on a Western diet, it is one milliequivalent of hydrogen per kilogram. But on a vegetarian or vegan diet, 
that ratio falls apart and they tend to be net alkali producers, not net acid producers. Right. And we, we talked about this a little last time that the, the sulfur-containing amino acids tend to be richer or more common in animal proteins, and then the alkali-containing amino acids more common in vegetable proteins. And this is really the work of Donald Wesson, who really has pushed this like vegetable-forward alkali-in-the-diet approach in management of CKD. Is the idea there that just that acid's bad? Is that the whole basis for a plant-based diet? Yes, I, th- I, I think so. I don't so. know. With respect to CKD. With I respect think to CKD, yeah. The idea. What the thinking is, is that because of the acidic environment that you do actually contribute to some of additional tubular damage and you get more tubular atrophy. And I, I think there's a few, couple papers and I'm happy to add them to the references that talk about how they've shown in folks that follow more alkali diet, they have an ever so slight slowed progression of their CKD. Oh, there's a number of pa- there's a number of papers and a number of ways that they have addressed this issue. So they've done it with the fruits and vegetables, right? right. And mm-hmm. Wesson and colleagues, and there's a young woman who's uh, who's done a lot of the work. I'm sorry that her name, her name escapes me. Nimrit Garoya at Baylor Scott and White in Texas. But they've attached themselves to like a food co-op. So when they do their studies, they don't just recommend people eat this stuff. They actually deliver the fruits and vegetables to their house to actually promote eating of these vegetables um, and these uh, net alkali producing fruits and vegetables. And it's not quite as powerful as the uh, sodium bicarbonate intervention studies where they actually neutralize the acid base, but it's it's pretty effective. They've looked at inflammatory markers, but they actually have shown changes in the, the rates of progression of CKD. It's pretty impressive work. Yeah. I think I'd rather eat meat and take a little bicarb tablet, but... No, I was just thinking that. <laughs> Here in the land of cheese and... Exactly. And bratwurst, yeah. <laughs> bratwurst. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, uh, the, the mechanism that Wesson has postulated is relates to endothelial activation, let you, were, you were mentioning about the progression of CKD. And there's actually even older work by Tom Hofstede that are also showing in models of uh, tubal interstitial disease how uh, acidic environment promotes fibrosis. But I wanted to come back to, Roger, when you were talking about these details about amino acids, the one clinical scenario that makes me think about all these issues as patients on parenteral nutrition that we see in the ICU, they have uh, you know 10% amino acid part of the formula that the patients receive. And as you pointed out, the, the sulfur-containing amino acids uh, generate an acid load. And my understanding, and this is why when you prepare this solution, part of the components is sodium acetate. You have to give a base to try to kind of balance out formula. It doesn't generate you know super high acid load. But I was wondering if the nutritionist or we as a prescribing physician have the ability to say, hey, I want you to change your amino acid uh, composition. Um, I don't know if that's even possible. That's kind of standard that, that the amino acids that come by the manufacturer have a set ratio of uh, acidic or base, base forming amino acids. So JC, that's a really interesting topic because, you know, one of my original mnemonics for non-anion gap acidosis was, I think, HARDOP. And, and the H of HARDOP was hydrochloric acid or hyperal. This is long time ago. So where the heck did that come from? And it's actually pretty hard to find. But, you know, the idea is, is that exactly what you said is, you know, you give too much acid. It's a non-anion gap because the, the anions will get excreted, but you're actually giving a high acid load. But 
you know, you think about it, you know, as we'll get into, the kidney has the ability to really ramp up acid production, and we should be easily able to handle a high-protein load from hyperal. So when I found that, actually, the article I found was way, way, way back, and it was basically in pediatric patients, that maybe they don't have the ability to ramp it up as much, and they would get a little more acidotic, and that's why they put the acetate in there. And to this day, that you can't have acetate-free TPN. It just, it's, it doesn't exist. And it's it's interesting because you have alkalotic patients that certainly don't need, you know, they have a metabolic alkalosis and you're giving them more base and there's not much you can do about it. But there is a certain minimal amount of acetate that's just built into the system. And I, and I it goes back to, I don't think there's a biochemical reason that, that they have to put acetate in there. I have not seen that you can actually modify the amino acid content or composition, but from what everything that I've learned is, especially in, in patients who've had extensive bowel surgeries is, you manage the bicarb with the acetate content, and that's it. Like that's your only option. Yeah, I think in, in our case we might be biased because when we get involved, typically patients have acute kidney injury, so they might have you know an impaired ability to handle acid. So perhaps the sodium acetate becomes more relevant for those patients. But going back to Roger's point, I don't think we get consulted uh, when patients have uh, normal kidney function and get uh, TPN. It could be because of the good acetate. I'm not sure. Major source of alkaline. I know Roger kind of mentioned this. I just want to focus. He identifies these are the anionic amino acids, and he says uh, glutamate, aspartate, and then he also talks about gluconeogenesis of organic anions, and he calls out very specifically citrate and lactate. And I wanted to call these out because I know therapeutically, we use both of these as alkali, right? We use citrate and lactate, and he has these nice little tables, not, not so much tables, but little uh, bits in the paragraph where he shows, you know, citrate mixed with four and a half uh, molecules of oxygen gives you five molecules of CO2, three molecules of water, and a bicarbonate. And lactate plus a hydrogen generates glucose and CO2. And so, there's kind of like two ways that this, and, and this is something that is a recurring theme in this chapter, is that there's two ways to generate alkali. Either you absorb a hydrogen or you produce a, a bicarbonate. And so lactate absorbs a hydrogen to form CO2 and glucose, and citrate absorbs CO2 to generate bicarbonate, kind of showing those two different examples. We cool with that? Yeah, I think this is one of those places where understanding those dissociation constants really helps that lactate and glutamate have stronger binding affinity for the hydrogen ion than something like an acid, like a sulfuric acid does. Sulfuric acid is going to completely dissociate in solution and release its hydrogens. That's why it's a strong acid, where something like the glutamate is going to bind up that hydrogen ion and bring it through its metabolism so you can absorb hydrogen ions with it. You know, the, the lactate especially, because we use it as a marker for perfusion, right or wrong, so oftenly, it generates a lot of confusion. And so when we give lactate in ringers, we're not giving lactic acid. We're giving sodium lactate. And the metabolism of sodium lactate absorbs, absorbs hydrogen. Yeah. Absorbs hydrogen, so it, it is a it is an alkali, a source of alkaline. That's the whole point of lactate in the lactated ringers is it's a source of alkali. Not a week goes by that I don't have to argue with a surgeon and, and lactate and lactic acid and with the difference and it's the bane of my ICU existence. Well, and it's important because it, people will then say, "Well, the guy's got liver disease." You're like, "No, no, don't worry about the liver disease, right? It's not. We're not giving him lactic acid. We're giving him sodium lactate, right?" But okay. Um, and then, uh, unless anybody else has something else that he goes on to say, the, uh, 
He says the normal, the net effect of a normal Western diet is 50 to 100 milliequivalents of hydrogen per day. And this is just a, you know, the number that I always remember is one milliequivalent per kilogram. And then um, he says that there's a three step homeostatic response to acid base loads. Step one is chemical buffering, just immediate reaction with the bicarbonate in the blood. Two, changes in ventilation to adjust that CO2 and ultimately changes in hydrogen excretion to excrete excess alkali or the excess acid. And then he runs through an example of sulfuric acid and it just kind of goes through those three steps. I know we've been talking about clinical correlations. And one of the things I I was thinking about is when you get these critically ill patients who come in and you're first seeing them and they've been down and they've not been breathing for a long time and their pH is six point, you know, God, whatever. People frequently will say, oh, well, their creatinine's not bad. Or like, I'll get that. Oh, they're making urine. And you're like, but all of these systems, the second and third steps have both, not only are they generating so much acid because, you know, they're not perfusing, but also they're not, they haven't been breathing for a long period of time. And so that's why the people get so, so deranged. And so sometimes like I I will talk to people and say, you know, like just because someone isn't making urine, you know, our dialysis patients go days without getting dialysis. It does. That's not the, the reason that these people need CRT. It's because they're so catabolic and they're not able to, you know, they're not ventilating properly and maybe they've got an AKI, but sometimes they don't even have that, you know, by by the numbers, have that bad of an AKI, but it's just that all of the problems are stacking up and they're so catabolic because they're hypotensive or whatever it is. Yeah, I think, uh, Anna, you know, what you said, it, it's so true in terms of uh, the number of times that we get consulted to dialyze a patient with acidemia. And when the, the driving cause is respiratory acidosis, more often than not, there is a component of metabolic acidosis at the same time. You know, you may not immediately recognize uh, because let's say the bicarb is 24, but the PCO2 is 70 and the pH is, you know, 7.0. Obviously, that bicarb should be way higher. So in those situations, most of the times you end up offering dialysis because yes, it's not the main problem, but if they are not able to fix it on a ventilator, you know, sometimes you have to just pull the trigger and offer dialysis. I'm, I'm not saying in an absolute fashion, but it's usually a complex scenario where deciding if dialysis is indicated in those settings is not that simple. I don't know if others have any, any thoughts. No, I absolutely agree. I, there's so many things that go into pHs and it's, it's so easy to overlook the big picture, you know, and to see that yeah, so the P, the, like you said, the bicarb is 24, but maybe it should be 32. And that ain't, gonna, that's not going to happen unless you supply some base to that person somehow. And dialysis would be one way to do it or an infusion would be, be another way. But, and this is something you know, that, you yeah. know, sometimes the fellows say, you know, the fellows or we, when I did it, I was younger too. You, you kind of get on the phone and you ask the consultant, have you adjusted your ventilator? And, and sometimes they take offense. You know, let me handle my ventilator. I'm calling you for dialysis. It's a very common, I'm sure all of you have experienced something similar to that. And and you have to always recognize that although they may not understand what is the actual uh, pathogenesis, you still can help with dialysis. And if ultimately it's about the patient, right? So uh, it's an interesting situation that we face sometimes. Let's go back to the uh, renal hydrogen excretion, Joel. <laughs> okay. So the the key part of his description when he kind of walks through what happens when you get a sulfuric acid load is that as the acid load builds, acid excretion rises. He has a picture of figure 11-1. And this ends up being 
kind of like the whole reason for the whole chapter. He's like, hey, our ability to excrete hydrogen is not fixed. Our ability to excrete hydrogen is variable. And the more hydrogen load we have, the faster our hydrogen excretion gets. And this is not earth shattering. Of course, you know, this is what the kidney does with all the toxins, right? The more the more the toxic load, the more of it more that it get gets rid of, except for it ends up being a pretty complex dance when we come to acid base. That's the setup of these first few pages is this figure 11 one that just shows as the acid load goes up, the acid excretion goes up. And, and along your point, Joel, if you look at figure 11 one, you go all the way to the left where the acid production might be 20 milliequivalents for 24 hours. That, that may be your vegetarian. And and as you work your way up to the right, where I guess it's 100, that could be your, you know, your, your meat eater. And the truth is that this graph, you could actually bring it up to four, you know, 400 because as you become more and more catabolic uh, and produce significantly higher amounts of hydronine, your ability to, to increase this uh, can increase, you know, it says four, four to five fold. So you can really go up and this, this graph cuts it off physiologic. Certainly when people are sick, this can go way to the right. So it's a huge uh, ability to increase. It's really remarkable. Right. Fivefold right there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he points out in the text, I'm not sure if it's here or later, that they were able to get all the way up to 300 milliequivalents of hydrogen being excreted per day. So that's a tenfold or 15-fold increase of hydrogen excretion. Please, I, I would, please Josh. Sorry, Joel, I just I would just add to, to the figure. It's in real tiny print at the bottom, but it says that the, this relationship Josh, is- Josh, you are here for your eyes. My 52-year-old yeah. eyes cannot see the signage text in the bottom. What does so it say? The f- the fine print at the bottom says that this is in the steady state in normal subjects. And I just want to highlight that it takes six or seven days to get this level of correlation between the acid production and the acid excretion. And I think that really goes back to the to the concept that we were talking about earlier, that there are these three stages of adaptation. The chemical buffering is like seconds. The alveolar ventilation is like minutes to hours. And Changes in renal hydrogen excretion are like on the order of days to weeks. Uh, and so expecting those changes to happen immediately or on the time scale of the first three days of an ICU stay is not really reflective of the physiology we understand, we've understood since the, the 70s and 80s. Can I ask a dumb question though? Please, the dumb question, Anna. No dumb question. <laughs> well, so then like if a vegetarian or a vegan just eats like a hamburger... Do they just hyperventilate for a couple of days? Like what? Well, what we're and talking they, about is their ability I mean, to heat, that, reach their peak ability of the acid. They may be able to get that acid excretion done. Yeah, that's true. in a much shorter period of time. It depends how big the hamburger is, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> it's one of those like eat the whole thing, you win a T-shirt thing. But, but it's actually quite which is also, which is what most of physiology is about is getting the T-shirt. Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard not to think about it like and like the liver metabolism of things, which is all enzyme mediated, where you're like, oh, you know, people who drink a lot of alcohol, their enzymes are more active, and, you know, or whatever, and then they can metabolize things more quickly. And it's hard not to think of it that way, although I, I we're literally talking about how that's not how it works. But it's just... No, I, I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable way. I mean, I think in the end, it's going to be enzymes that are just going to work slightly different. They're not directly detoxifying. They're going to be pumping things in different directions, right? Melanie, you look like you wanted to say something. Oh, I was just going to add that um, he goes through a lot of this adaptation in great detail later on in the chapter. And this, uh, we can see some of that later in figure 11, 10. And it looks like it would be that, don't worry, your vegetarian hamburger eater could probably get it done um, within a day or two. <laughs> Not only that. So never fear if you're thinking of going to the dark side. 
<laughs> well, or even just like me when I go to like, you know, Fogo or something. Yeah, well, when you go to Fogo, I'm sure you probably need to be dialyzed, so. Doing some heavy breathing <laughs> yeah, after. Okay. For some time, we yeah, were going maybe. to Fogo and like any city that we were going to. And I'm like, okay, I'm done with this. Ever since COVID, I'm like, no. What is what is Fogo? What are you talking about? Fogo de Chao. Like the... Fogo yeah. de what? It's a Brazilian steakhouse where they keep bringing you more and more and more meat. Yeah. Is there Sometimes. one? Is there one in Boston? And are we going to one in Spring Clinical Meeting? That's all I need <laughs> yes. to know. Yes. Oh yeah, they're in every. Yeah. I'm not sure there is. I went. Oh, okay, I have to look it up. We had one. We had a meeting. There is one in Boston, and we had a like a Boston renal, like citywide renal rounds there, and they bring the meat on this big stick and they cut it onto your plate and everybody most people i think were at that time were still meat eaters but everyone looked horrified and embarrassed sitting with each other eating that much meat so i don't know no no shame over here oh my god does it come with a side side owner of raspberry case I really want to do that with Roger sitting next to me being like, you know, we were evolved to do this. Like we are hunting down, you know, that brontosaurus and eating them or whatever. Well, you know, I mean, getting back to what we were talking about, acid being bad. I mean, you know, that was the whole Brenner hypothesis. The protein was bad. It was bad because of hyperfiltration injury and whatever legitimacy to that, you could take it to the next level and say protein's bad because it causes hyperfiltration transiently. And that was thought to be part of aging. And it's a beautiful article back in the 80s that Barry Brenner wrote proposing you know, the progression of renal disease based on the Ameri- the Western diet of high protein. I mean, you could say the same thing that it could actually, that it's bad for because of the acid load too. But Anna, getting back to your uh, vegetarian, you know, I don't think you'd have to hyperventilate because if you do the math, I mean, let's say you, you go from 10 milliequivalents, let's go to really wrap it up to 100 milliequivalents that day. You know, you eat a lot of meat, you make 100 millimoles of acid. And, you know, that. You, let's say you've got a body water of, total body water of 50 liters. You know, that would just, that would utilize two millimoles of bicarb. So your bicarb goes from 24 to 22. And, you know, you really wouldn't need to hyperventilate for that unless you were, you know, think of our dialysis patients. In between dialysis, they drop one or two millimoles. So I don't think you'd have to hyperventilate. So I think you'll be okay. <laughs> and that makes, I mean, that makes sense because I usually eat, you know, like what, one serving, like six ounces of meat a day. And there are definitely times on vacation where I have like, you know, like steak for breakfast, steak for lunch, steak for, you know, and I 10 times that. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So I just pulled up this like weird study in 1984. It says the effect of protein intake on ventilatory drive. I'm just skimming it. So don't take anything I say as truth, but basically says it doesn't really affect your frequency of breathing, but maybe your tidal volume. So even though your minute ventilation increases, you just take bigger breaths. So maybe that's why no one's hyperventilating after they eat. I do kind of feel like I do that after I eat a lot of meat, but I think that's like a... I'm outing myself. Just because you're so small. So maybe we should be like protein restricting our like advanced pulmonary fibrosis, like advanced COPD people who can't change their tidal volume very much instead of really pushing it on our CKD patients. I'm sure they'll go over well in in pulmonary clinics. I'll read it a little bit more in depth later. But and I think that's also again a reminder that you can't just look at someone and know how much they're ventilating. Um, And I think that's sort of important. Sometimes forget that. But I mean, I always take the residence by if somebody's very acidotic and they, you know, I say, what is Kussmaul ventilation? And they're all thinking it's going to be this really rapid breathing. And it's obviously not because the the faster you breathe, the less efficient it is because your tidal volume. More dead space. Yeah, more dead space. So your VDVT ratio goes down. So it's much more effective to, to 
maybe speed up a little bit, but to take a deeper breath, which is really what you were saying, you get more bang for your buck with a deeper breath than a faster breath. So a lot of times they don't realize that. And if you really look at them, you know, they, they have trouble talking because they're just taking, they're constantly breathing, but it's not a speed thing. Yeah. It's just, so, they, they, instead of looking at the respiratory rate on the monitor, they have to look at the patient because it's really a very unique way of breathing. You recognize it just by observing. I mean, the, the extreme example of that of dogs when they pant, you know, they all they're doing is moving their dead space to cool off. That's why they don't get alkalotic on you. They can sit there and move a lot of air and get rid of a lot of lot of uh, calories by, but they're not getting alkalotic because they're not really hyperventilating. They're just kind of moving their dead space in and out and cooling off. They're that like way. perspiring through their tongue. Yeah. Just their paws, right? Yeah. Okay. And then on page 328, he has six bullet points. And I read these bullet points and I was like, man, this is like everything you need to know about acid-based renal handling. I love these. I'm going to read each one of them. We can talk about them. So first, the kidneys must excrete 50 to 100 milliequivalents of non-carbonic acid generated every day. And I think this is a great way of specifying, right? If it's carbonic acid, we're going to be able to ventilate it. We're going to be able to breathe that off. That's the CO2. It's the non-carbonic acid, which is everything we've been talking about in terms of the proteins. So that's bullet point one. Bullet point two, this is achieved by hydrogen secretion. Although the major mechanisms are different in the proximal tubule and thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle and in the collecting tubules, right? So this is what we're going to be talking about. Kidney has to excrete this hydrogen. There's going to be a multiple different mechanisms for secreting this hydrogen. It's going to vary as the tissues change from proximal tubule to thick ascending limb to collecting tubules, but that's going to be the job of the kidney. Three, the daily acid load cannot be excreted as free hydrogen ion. Since the free hydrogen ion concentration in the urine is extremely low, less than 0.05 millivolts per liter in the physiologic pH range, right? If we could pee out stomach acid, we could get rid of our daily acid load as hydrogen, but we don't. We pee out our urine pH minimum is 4.5, not nearly acidic enough to get rid of the daily acid load. So we need to smuggle the hydrogen out as some other compound. Don't you think we need some kind of math example from Roger now about how many liters of urine you'd need to make? I you... did that one. It's it's a thousand liters of it's urine a, a day yep. to excrete an acid load. Yeah, the, uh, the normal acid load. So yeah. It, at it at a pH to... of 4.5, right? If you get your pH, pH down to 4. 1, 5. you can get it out in two liters. No problem. Sure. <laughs> so you can't, ex- you can't pee out stomach acid and you can't pee a thousand liters a day. Therefore, you need other buffering compounds like ammonium to help pull. Talk about to the, urine. the other way, the other way I like to think about it too is it's at a maximum pH of four point five to to blood at seven point five. That's three logs, so it's a thousand different. And you know, if you want to have a stomach where your pH is one, that would be about a million to one. It would be so the concentration, and that that's you know, it's amazing the stomach can do that. Quite frankly, and it's also interesting that that we evolved to do it this way, and that we didn't involve a stomach to get rid of our acid load. You know, because the stomach can do it; it can get a pH of one. So it is buffered. It has to be buffered, and it's a smart. Imagine peeing stomach pH of one. That would I think that would hurt. <laughs> well, patients who have uh, like an augmented bladder with stomach tissue that used to be done, and they would get actually a very profound huh. alkalosis. Um, yeah, that's why they so, don't use the stomach tissue anymore, right? They use the terminal yeah. ileum or something. So, Although I don't know how much dysuria they had. And I do know you could fix it with a PPI, but... <laughs> I, I didn't know they used to use them. Yeah. Not oh, very commonly. Awesome. Melanie is right here on all fronts. The use of a stomach as a neobladder, also called gastrocystoplasty, is less common today than it used to be. 
In a 1995 paper called Once a Stomach, Always a Stomach, Kogan et al. report a series of five children with gastric neobladders who produced neutral urine free of titratable acid in a fasted state. After feeding, serum gastrin levels increased and urine pH decreased markedly, but the effect was abrogated by treatment with H2 blockers or anticholinergic treatment. The most common complication of this procedure is hematuria dysuria syndrome. It's characterized by symptoms of bladder spasms, suprapubic and periurethral pain, and brown or macroscopic hematuria, as well as dysuria without overt infection. It's true that complications are common, including the hematuria dysuria syndrome and metabolic alkalosis, but these complications are not as universal as you would think. A 1999 Journal of Urology case series reported a series of 22 patients with gastrocystoplasty over 48 to 96 months and reported just two instances of hematuria dysuria syndrome and two cases of metabolic alkalosis. Hematuria dysuria syndrome is generally treatable with H2 receptor blockers or anticholinergic treatment, and so the stomach is still sometimes used as a neobladder. I mean, the ilium is not free either. You get a, you know, you get a, you get a oh, definitely yeah. an alkalosis or a metabolic acidosis from, from Although, and then back, coming back to the concept that you mentioned earlier, most patients who have ilium for augmented bladder do not get metabolic acidosis unless they have very reduced renal function. Yeah. I think it depends on like the length of the ileum that they use, and but typically it does go away. I think like sometimes they might have it for the first day or two post-op, but afterwards it goes away. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. amount of yeah, stasis, the length of ileum, the amount of stasis, and and how good their underlying. I think a lot of it's a stasis because you have to. It takes time to exchange, and one of the you know that's one of the signals of a possible obstructed neobladder conduit is uh, you've got a transit time to make that exchange and become. Acidotic, yeah. We had a skeleton key group on this. Yeah, that was my patient. Yeah, it was really nice. I keep that visual abstract actually. I think, you like made in my, the I, think I made maybe did that one. <laughs> so I think I did. It. I did it for NSMC, but I keep that visual. No, 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 I keep it like in my pocket for students when we have patients like that. It's because it's a nice, like, that's what I like about visual abstracts. You can be like, here's all the learning points in one thing. I would like to show you a picture of the most beautiful baby in the world. It's a picture of me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I keep a lot of the skeleton key group visual abstracts, actually, because I edit that for Renal Fellow Network. So I look at them all, but a lot of them are really useful. And I'm like, well, instead of, you know, memorizing this on rounds and sometimes I don't have enough time, I can just like text it to my student and be like, read this on the way to see the patient. So shout out to SKG. So the next bullet point is the daily acid load also cannot be excreted unless virtually all of the filtered bicarbonate has been reabsorbed because bicarbonate lost in the urine is equivalent to adding hydrogen ions to the body. Super important concept. Must reabsorb all filtered bicarbonate first. Five, secreted hydrogen ions are excreted by binding either to filtered buffers such as HPO42 negative and creatinine or to ammonia to form ammonium. Ammonium is generated from the metabolism of glutamine in the proximal tubule. The rate at which this occurs can be varied according to physiologic needs. And the last bullet point, the extracellular pH is the primary physiologic regulator of net acid excretion. In pathophysiologic states, however, the effective circulating volume, aldosterone, and the plasma potassium concentration all can affect acid excretion independent of the systemic pH. And so I thought these six bullet points were just like Man, that just crystallizes all the major learning points that you need to know about renal hydrogen handling. And we're going to go through them the rest of it, but I thought those were really, really good. 
I just was wondering, I thought that creatinine was a cation because it's tra- it's transported by the organic cation transporters. They make always make a big deal about that because of competitive inhibition, say, with like cimetidine and dolotegravir, et cetera. So how come over here it can accept a hydrogen? Is it like... Is it sort of like hydronium? So I don't know. I've never heard of creatinine being something to accept a hydrogen. That, that I have actually theory. read literature linking creatinine secretion for both to both anion and, and cationic transport. Oh, I was just going to say, maybe it can do both. Maybe it's one of those things that can like, it's a cation, but it can... I was just going to ask if those transporters, I mean, they are a little bit, sorry for this, promiscuous. I mean, they are, <laughs> they do sort of take a lot of things. Yeah, but Melanie, you, watch you, your mouth. Come on. <laughs> you can't do both. I mean, you could do both based on the pH, but you can't do both at the same time. That, that, right. I don't think that's physio, you know, physiochemically possible, but I have no idea. I just thought it was funny that he slipped that in there. I, I think, again, I'm Googling on the fly like Amy was earlier, but I think I'm seeing the same thing that JC is seeing, that creatinine can be excreted via the certain organic anion transporters and certain organic cation transporters. And like looking at the structure of the creatinine, it's got like an ammonia group on one side that you could imagine accepting an extra proton, just like ammonia accepts an extra proton to become ammonium. So it kind of makes sense that could be a, a proton acceptor, but it's a good question about, I, I would guess that the unprotonated form is the one that gets transported into the tubule and then it can accept that proton once it's there. And then like the ammonia, it gets stuck because it's protonated and can't go back across the membrane anymore. Well, they say its pKa is 4.97. So that means at physiologic pH, is going to be... It should be, be deprotonated, be right? And then I think if your urine pH drops lower in that range, you start getting protonated creatinine. So at 4.97 or whatever, half your creatinine is going to be protonated. A little higher than that, it's going to be like 25, 75, protonated and not. If you go below... Five, then you're going to get much more protonated creatinine. So it's able to carry more hydrogen ions along with it at lower pHs, letting you get rid of more hydrogen ions in the urine. But I was just going to say, like, I really like this whole chapter because honestly, like, how the kidney handles acid is just like very confusing to me. And I was always like, well, why are we excreting bicarb? Why is it binding to bicarb? You need bicarb. And so like, I really like that point where he says it all has to be reabsorbed. And so I think like this chapter really, the way that he breaks it down, he talks about the bicarb and then he talks about the phosphatric, phosphatric acid. And then he talks about ammonia. For me, it was really, really helpful in trying to understand like what is acting more in terms of acid secretion and why. Yeah, I totally agree with Amy here. Just that I think like, the way we learn this is with things like urine anion gap, which are telling you about the things you cannot see. And here in the chapter, we're talking about the things that do the work that we can talk about, the ph- phosphates and the creatinines and the ammonias of the world, as opposed to imagining what they might be in that urine anion gap world. Okay, so he starts off with renal hydrogen excretion. He says it's critical to understand that loss of bicarbonate is like addition of hydrogen to the body. And so all the bicarb must be reabsorbed before dietary hydrogen load can be secreted. And then he gives a kind of an example, a very Roger-like example. It says a GFR of 125 with a bicarbonate of 24 results in 4,300 milliequivalents of bicarbonate filtered every day. And all of that needs to be reabsorbed. So there's this huge burden 
that the kidney puts on itself by filtering that bicarbonate needs to reabsorb all of that before it can do the work of getting rid of that 50 to 100 milliequivalents of, of the daily acid load. And that 90% of this is done in the proximal tubule. He says that there are three initial points that need to be emphasized. One, the secreted hydrogen ion is generated from the dissociation of water. That also creates a hydroxyl ion, an OH ion, which combines with CO2 to reform bicarbonate with the help of a zinc-containing intracellular carbonic anhydrase. And this is how the secretion of hydrogen, which creates a hydroxyl ion, ultimately produces bicarbonate. And then he says that we have very different molecular mechanisms for proximal and distal acidification. Why does he, in the first bullet point, why does he make a special point of saying this equimolar production of hydroxyl ions? Well, because remember, what we're, what we're doing in the proximal tubules, we're going to be secreting hydrogen into the, into the tubular lumen, and that's going, to just, that's going to consume one of the bicarbonates. We emphasize that every time we secrete a hydrogen ion, it's like reabsorbing a bicarbonate. So secreting that hydrogen leaves that equimolar amount of OH or hydroxyl ion that combines with a CO2 to form that bicarbonate. And that's so that one-to-one ratio is important in terms of thinking about it. So maybe, Joe, we can jump to the uh, figure 11.2, which starts to address that handling of, of the filter bicarb. This is one of my favorite graphs of this book. You know, that he repeats this graph in several chapters. And what helped me understand when the first time I, I read this chapter is you have to start with the filter bicarb. That's kind of a word for me. Because if you start looking at the transporter... It may be a little bit difficult to understand the whole process, but you have to start with the filter biker. The filter biker molecule arrives to the proximal tubule, and the sodium hydrogen exchanger is going to secrete a hydrogen ion that's going to meet that bicarb to just get filter to convert this. There's a carbonic anhydrase that's going to make, in the luminal side, it's going to make a carbonic acid, which is going to be converted to CO2 water and then goes into the cell. And then once it's into the cell, another intracellular carbonic hydrogen is going to break it down again into, into that hydrogen ion and a bicarb molecule. So the hydrogen ion that was secreted and met the bicarb ion ends up being again formed in the cell. So it's important that there isn't a net hydrogen loss through this mechanism. But the bicarb that got formed actually goes and gets reabsorbed through the basolateral side, through the sodium bicarb uh, co-transporter. So this is very a little different than what happens and we're going to discuss about ammonium. But this is, to me, a very important concept to understand that this is a mechanism to reabsorb bicarb that needs a hydrogen secretion, but it doesn't lead to a net hydrogen acid loss. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think the cool thing about this is that there's bicarbonate reabsorption without an apical bicarbonate transporter. Exactly. Because you turn your bicarbonate into a CO2 diffusible gas at the brush border. It then goes just over the border and then gets caught by another carbonic anhydrase and turned back into bicarb. It's like like 
bicarb teleportation. Yeah. It just yeah. shows up on one side and then zaps to the other side and then you get to excrete it back into the body, which that, is really that, cool. That, that is what's so cool because you're not really absorbing bicarb. You're you're taking the bicarb that you're filtering and put it in a way that you can move the CO2 back in the blood and then you make new bicarb again. So ultimately, it may be the same carbon and the same proton and everything else, but you're... It's not the same yeah, bicarb. Not, when, you, when you say you absorb bicarb, you just kind of think, oh, it's like you reabsorb glucose or something. No, you really don't. You, you, you take the bicarbs being filtered turn into CO2 and water, move that into the cell and make a new bicarb. It, it's kind of a long step. So obviously reabsorbing bicarb just from must be, it must have been difficult because we evolved this way. Well, I think if you think about it in these pictures, it makes it look like it's all the same. But in theory, I always kind of picture it as like, like the bicarbs in the, in the filtrate are like, if you painted each one a different color and then you looked at them inside the cell, they'd actually be like patchwork colored when they reformed. So it's not like it's just one at a time, you know, because we look at this picture and you're like, what? Why? I remember learning this and somebody being like, well, it's not the same bicarb. I'm like, why the heck does it matter? Like, okay, so there's an extra step. Like, who cares? But there's actually a lot. It's not like it's just one, you know, molecule at a time that it's that it's doing. That's how our acid base lecture is for the medical students. Our physiologist who teaches this part of the acid base curriculum is he has them follow the carbon. And so they actually have the, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in following the carbon, that concept really made it a lot more clear for me, for sure. And, and the other interesting part that we're probably going to talk more when we get to metabolic alkalosis in a future chapter, but again, what is required for the bicarb to reabsorb starts with a filter bicarb meeting a hydrogen ion. And how does that hydrogen ion get in out of cell with a sodium hydrogen exchanger? So in a sodium avid state where the sodium hydrogen is activated and you're going to reclaim in sodium, you're going to be always also reabsorbing bicarb, which goes to this elemental principle of volume expansion uh, as a way to correct uh, a metabolic alkalosis that will be perpetuated in, in a sodium avid state. So we did get kind of ahead of ourselves and really drill down into the proximal tubule, which I think we're going to, oh, there's proximal acidification, it's, but it comes after the section on net acid excretion. You talk about net acid excretion. This is kind of a way to find a, do the, the final tally about, well, how much acid is being excreted? And it's not, it, you know, a, a negligible amount is going to be in the low pH of the urine. Uh, a significant portion is going to be in your titratable acids, which is primarily phosphates, but not entirely. We talked about creatinine and uh, uric acid is another one that also contributes to the titratable acid. And then lastly is the ammonium. And so it's TA plus ammonium plus a very minor 1% or so, less than 1% contribution to the hydrogen ion that all contribute to net acid excretion. Oh, and minus bicarbonate loss. So if you do have bicarbonaturia, that is going to subtract away from. It should be all reabsorbed, but we we know in some situations with metabolic alkalosis or with carbonic anhydrous inhibitors, you can get bicarbonaturia. And then he points out that here he does say that that can be ramped up to 300 milliequivalents a day uh, if the acid production is increased. And that he also says that net acid pr- production can go negative on the, we talked about these vegetarian diets or people with net alkali diet. So, you know, it said 90% is reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. I've always struggled with that. And, and maybe because I, it just gets to another level that I don't want to deal with. So, you know, when I think about it and when I teach about it, I basically say it's the proximal tubule reabsorbs the bicarb and the distal tube collecting duct is what it secretes the proton. So I like to separate that way. You know, I don't know if there's any value or we can, maybe as we get further along, 
talk about that other 10% or is that other 10% that's not ribs or proximally, is it kind of clinically relevant or not? Well, there is a neat mechanism uh, when we get to the ammonia and ammonium recycling where you get hydrogen secretion in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle, and that they talk about that as scavenging some of the final bicarbonate that gets filtered. And that's kind of a cool mechanism. We'll get to that later. But I, Roger, I do, I, I, I'm so in favor of trying to simplify this. I'm on your, I'm on your side here. So after net acid excretion, we are back to proximal acidification. We've talked about the sodium hydrogen antiporter and the luminal membrane. And then the other half of that story is, well, how do you get the bicarb out of the cell? We've recreated the bicarb. We brought the CO2 in. We combined it with the hydroxyl ion, formed the bicarbonate, and we need to get that out of the cell. It takes three bicarb with along with a sodium, and this is a weird transporter, right? Because the sodium is moving up its concentration gradient, but the three negative anions or three anions in the three bicarbonate is being squeezed out by the net negative charge in the tubular cell. And that carries the sodium along with it. I do think it's weird that you do have that sodium there, but seems to go along. That's all driven by sodium, by the charge created by sodium potassium ATPase, right? Roger's correct there. In fact, all of this acid is, and again, we've seen this over and over in the kidney, is the sodium potassium ATPase is the primary source of energy here. It's a source of energy for the sodium hydrogen exchanger that brings hydrogen into the, excuse me, excretes hydrogen into the tubular, into the tubular lumen. And it's a source of energy for getting the bicarbonate out of the basolateral side. Yeah, we don't talk about clinically about this sodium bicarb co-transporter in the basolateral side, uh, particularly in adult medicine, there are mutations in children that and this co-transporter that will lead to proximal renal tubular acidosis. But, you know, we don't have a pharmacological intervention to manipulate this. Like, for instance, we have uh, medications that interfere with carbonic anhydrase uh, enzyme. So it's interesting. It's an interesting co-transporter, but not something that it's discussed much in clinical grounds. But in children, is that what's the phenotype of that? So we, it would be a proximal RTA because you know it's it's necessary okay. to complete the reabsorption of bicarbonate. So they'll have renal tubular acidosis. I, I I admit I've never seen a patient. This is all just reading. Pediatricians probably have seen cases. I don't know if or maybe specialized syndrome. Melanie, have you seen it in Boston? I haven't seen that. I do have a patient with cystinosis. I think I mentioned that who really does have severe Fanconi syndrome, but I haven't seen the isolated defect. And then he does point out in this section again. I don't know how important it is. It says about a third of the hydrogen secretion actually is going to be your standard hydrogen ATPase like we think about in the distal nephron actually also happens here in the proximal tubule, which is weird, but he said it's there. And similarly, there is also a bicarbonate chloride exchanger, pendrin-like, that also exists in the proximal tubule. Again, you know, we focus on these unique transporters, but there seems to be some overlap that some of the same uh, molecules that we see in the distal nephron show up here in the proximal tubule. You know, as I was reading this, one of the things I, I think when I was first thinking about nephrology as a career, I used I was very intimidated by all the transporters. It seemed like people were always making up another one. And and I guess I just over time got comfortable ignoring certain transporters and or ignoring some of the stoichiometry and I, and I, it's fun to come back to but it's also still intimidating. 
Oh, thank you for saying that. It's interesting. Sometimes, you know, we, we under, think we understand certain part of the nephron, and there is just a new paper that describes a new channel or new transporter. And I kind of feel like the whole, my whole foundation is, is trembling and, oh, wait a second. So how does that fit into what we understand? So you, we have to really have an open mind and understand that many of the things that we understand today may not be correct. Or we were right for the wrong reason. <laughs> like the SGL2 inhibitor story, right? The other, the other theory is physiological accuracy and then a model which is accurate enough. Right. Like we don't need to have a perfectly uh, a perfect model of how the kidney works to make intelligent clinical decisions for patients. You need to have a model that's accurate enough when we make decisions in terms of IV fluids or, or interventions. We understand what's going to happen to patients. And I think some of these subtleties that we're going to talk about, especially in this chapter, may not have clinical relevance. Right. I mean, just as Roger said earlier about only reabsorbing 90% of the bicarbonate. Perfect. And we all know there's no bicarbonate in the urine when we collect it, or normally there's none unless they have a bicarbonate load. And so we know somewhere, you know, watch me waving hands, somewhere along there that bicarbonate must be reabsorbed or, you know, I mean, we don't have bubbles in our urine. You, well, we usually, but, um, and if it does, it's mostly churning on the way out. So we know we're not making too much CO2 in the urine either. So it must get reabsorbed somewhere. And I think if we got bogged down by all of that, we wouldn't be able to move forward in this chapter or in our careers. Well, I mean, that's, that's when I, when I read this book, that's the, probably the single thing I liked about this book is that it, it basically stressed the major factors of what's going on in the kidney and it doesn't get caught up. It doesn't have all the 14 other things with, with equal chapter, equal size chapter. So you don't know in the end, you, you end up with nothing. And I think it's better that we end up with something, even if we're a tiny bit off, but we have our concepts down and then you can tweak it from there if you need to do, if you need to do it, but it's hard enough to have the basic concepts, much less adding Pendrin all over the place, for instance. It's the bane of poor Roger's existence, the Pendrin. Okay. <laughs> distal, distal acidification. The thing to remember about the proximal tubule is it moves a massive amount of bicarbonate. And now we're in the distal nephron and we have a much smaller task. Instead of 4,000 millivolts of bicarbonate that needs to be reabsorbed, all we need to do is excrete 50 to 100 millivolts of hydrogen. This is going to be a hydrogen ATPase as the primary secretor of acid. There is also a hydrogen potassium exchanger along with an ATP. It's a very complex molecule. Hydrogen going one way, potassium going the other way, ATP being converted to ADP. That's all on the apical membrane. And then on the basal lateral side, we need to move bicarb out. And instead of having a sodium bicarbonate exchanger or co-transporter, now we have a chloride bicarbonate exchanger. And he does point out that the potassium hydrogen exchanger is seems to be more important for combating hypokalemia rather than ma- maintaining acid base status and it's so weird for me to think of net potassium reabsorption happening in the distal nephron i'm so focused on potassium secretion happening in the distal nephron it was interesting to see that actually in combating hypokalemia there's a role here sometimes difficult to distinguish that from the hydrogen atpas but as you pointed out joel the potassium hydrogen ATPase exchanger pump is stimulated by hypokalemic states. It's, it's really hypokalemia what triggers its action, whereas the hydrogen ATPase is stimulated by aldosterone. 
and maybe changes in extracellular pH. So the regulatory mechanisms differ. And then there's this very interesting aspect about why do we have these different systems? Why do we have a sodium-hydrogen exchange in the proximal tubule and we have a hydrogen ATPase in the distal nephron? And he says that if we were going to do a hydrogen-sodium exchanger, like we have the proximal tubule and the distal nephron, you know, one of the big differences in the distal nephron is there's no carbonic anhydrase. So the hydrogen that's secreted really drops the urinary pH. So the pH in the proximal tubule really doesn't change much. There's a nice picture of that on figure 11.5 where you can see the delta pH. And you look at the proximal tubule and there's just almost no difference that the pH doesn't drop. Why? Because every time a hydrogen is secreted, it immediately gets picked up by carbonic anhydrates, gets combined with bicarbonate carbonate and disappears. You don't accumulate any hydrogen there. But in the distal nephron, that's not the story. Hydrogen gets secreted and the urinary pH drops. And we talked about this minimal urine pH of 4.5. But what that means is there's a significant concentration gradient that you need to pump the hydrogen against. Burton Rose doesn't present the math, but he says that in order for you to use a hydrogen sodium exchanger like we have in the proximal tubule, if you needed that in the distal nephron, the intracellular sodium concentration would have to be less than one in order to get enough energy to pump out that hydrogen. And he says, in reality, it's 20 to 40. Is that what his number comes out, 20 to 40? I'm, I'm, I'm doing that by memory. I think it sounds high for intracellular sodium concentration. I think 20 was the number that they used. But the key factor there is you just don't have the energy. That movement, that uh, gradient from of sodium moving into the cell is not enough power to move hydrogen against the hydrogen gradient with that low urinary pH. Roger, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, that was that was an epiphany to me. I think I didn't don't remember learning that before, and I think that's absolutely fascinating, and it's a great explanation, and it's got to be the reason. Yeah, no, it, it is very cool. And then he talked about kind of the regulation of the hydrogen ATPase. He, he compared it to the aquaporin channels is that you have ready-made hydrogen ATPase on these intracellular vesicles. And then when you need to increase your ability to acidify the urine, you just move these vesicles to the um, apical membrane and that in increases that hydrogen. And the opposite, when you don't need to secrete so much hydrogen, you have endocytosis pulling those hydrogen ATPases off of the apical membrane. I feel like I tried to look into how the distal nephron senses blood pH. And I feel like I end up with like six or seven all really cool mechanisms that I feel like I still need a week to understand each of. The short version of that is that there are like lots of different ways to sense pH. There are pH sensitive ion channels that lead to ion currents into the, the distal nephron, the tubule cells. There are hydrogen ion sensitive G protein coupled receptors that sense the hydrogen ion changes, or the pH changes. There are kinases and enzymes whose activity increases or decreases depending on the pH as well. And so like some combination of all of these mechanisms seems to be the upstream stuff that leads to downstream insertion of these hydrogen ATPase pumps into the membrane. And it's it's cool to imagine all these things going on at once and like how the cellular physiology changes when you go from normal pH to, to lower than normal. But what's also really cool is that it's not just pH. It's also things that circulating volume, it's things that mm -hmm. if you think about it, like eventually low circulating volume will lead to acidosis. So it's like- It like heads it off at the past. 10 steps yeah. ahead of things. Yeah, I think that's so cool. It's really cool. Human body, right guys? Kidneys, great. Two thumbs up. Letty, any, any thoughts on how you teach uh, distal acidification to your medical students? Nothing that I can add to this, um, you know, to everything that you guys have already, already said. To be honest, we- don't really go into this much detail because... No molecular detail for you guys. 
Yes, no, just the amount of time that we have. No, no, and I, I, I was not trying to, it's not a criticism oh, no, no, at no, all. No, no, I wasn't trying to yeah. imply that. No, okay. no, 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 not at all. But yeah, we don't really, yeah, although now I'm like thinking if we did, this would be a really challenging concept to teach. Yeah, I'm not sure I've gotten into this detail until now. Yeah. So I think that's... Talking about the hydrogen ATPase vesicles, he, he, in the same paragraph, he talks about the cases of acquired renal tumor acidosis. So earlier we talked about the sodium bicarbonate co-transporter, how in adult medicine we don't really relate much with that. Here is an example of something that we do relate, which is in the cases of uh, Sjogren syndrome that patients present with a pretty dramatic uh, hypokalemia and distal RTA, and they present very acidotic, very hypokalemic, and uh, there was some elegant, actually not studied is mostly case reports of patients who had a no ex- identifiable hydrogen ATPase expression in the apical side of the tubules. So this absence uh, of, yeah. of this ATPase. Yeah, he, he puts it out right in the study. He says, these people have no hydrogen ATPase whatsoever. And then he has a sentence, and we don't know why, which I loved. I, yeah, l- so I love the humility there. <laughs> I, I try to get to the bottom of this years ago, and... and uh, I failed because these are actually case reports. We're not looking at case series of, of large studies. We're looking at uh, sophisticated uh, genetic analysis. These are just reports when they found these patients and they lack the H ATPase. And one of the authors is Bastani, who spent some time working on this topic. And uh, being Sjogren and autoimmune disease, the logical hypothesis autoantibodies. There's got to be some autoantibody that is attacking this hydrogen ATPase and get and just getting rid of them. And he went as far as finding some evidence of IgG staining in the tubular uh, layer, suggesting there was some sort of... Uh, there was there was a IgG staining. Yes, it yes. Was, there is a report is. by Bastani that okay. shows some sort of IgG presence in, in this patient, suggesting there was an autoimmune. And there's more recently, there was an Asian group who reported actually some uh, circulating autoantibodies against HATPS, but it hasn't been replicated. I, I'm not sure if we're ready to call it, but it's interesting. There's an autoimmune disease acquired. We see it in adult medicine. They present with this RTA, and it's just apparently because they, this hydrogen ATPA is, uh, is gone. Very interesting. JC, when he, when he set that up, he put a really important point. He said, not only do they have a metabolic acidosis from the inability to secrete hydrogen, but they also have profound hypokalemia. And, uh, Burton Rose talks about this a little bit. He says, Hey, these, we're, we're focusing on the intercalated cells. But remember, these are embedded with a bunch of the, as uh, Melanie said in the previous episode about the cobblestoning, where you have the principal cells. And the, these cooperate. The way that they work together is you have the ENAC channels, the sodium channels in the principal cells. The E stands for, for epithelial, but I always think of it as electrogenic, is that they generate this negative charge in the tubule because you have sodium moving from the, from the tubular fluid into the cell, leaves a negative charge in the tubule. And that negative charge is going to suck potassium out and it's going to help suck hydrogen out. Burton Rose actually, he specifically says, they minimize back diffusion of hydrogen and promotes bicarbonate resorption. So it's not so much that it sucks the hydrogen out, but it prevents that hydrogen that's been secreted from back diffusing. If you don't have hydrogen being secreted, absorbing that negative charge, you're going to get enhanced potassium secretion. And that's why you get the hypokalemia associated with this classic distal RTA. And that's why those will walk together. If you're not getting hydrogen secretion, something has to absorb that negative charge and it's going to be excess potassium causing that renal potassium wasting. 
Yeah, I think uh, Roger, who does board review, may comment, but you know, the classic case they would face in a test is somebody with a potassium of 1.8. The two most likely answers are going to be uh, some sort of hypokalemic paralysis or distal RTA, because those are the, the two clinical entities that are notorious for having that dramatic uh, clinical presentation. I've only seen less of a handful of those cases, and actually half of them were distal RTAs, not hypokalemic paralysis. I don't know if it, you, you guys have seen cases like that. Alcoholics. It's always alcohol. <laughs> At least in Detroit. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Lots of electrolyte disorders with alcohol. And then he mentions that what powers the, the bicarbonate chloride exchanger is the very low intracellular chloride concentration. I don't I'm always think about the low intracellular sodium concentration, but there's also a low chloride concentration because the primary intracellular anion is phosphate, right? So that, so that powers that one. It's not, and then he says that it's the same molecule as the bicarbonate chloride exchanger found on red blood cells, which was news to me. I had no idea that there was a chloride bicarbonate exchanger on red blood cells, but apparently there is. <laughs> My last note here is that I like the figure 11.5. And 11.5 shows how much the pH changes in these different segments, proximal tubule, distal convoluted tubule, and the ureteral urine. In the caption or in the text, he says that the ureteral urine really is a proxy for our cortical and medullary collecting duct, and that segments that do not have carbonic and hydrase, where hydrogen can accumulate, have these dramatic drops in pH, while other segments that have carbonic and hydrase, any hydrogen that is secreted is very quickly consumed, combined with some other molecules, and you have no delta change to the pH. Josh, what would you say? Oh, yeah. I I think the other thing that figure 11.5 pointed out for me is like one more reason why type 1 renal tubular acidoses are often more severe acidoses than type 2 more proximal renal tubular acidoses. I'd always attributed that to the type 2 proximal stuff is happening upstream and there's plenty of nephron left to make it up as you go downstream. But I think the point about the carbonic anhydrase here is is really important that you have these mechanisms to maintain pH early on and there's nothing left later. Uh, And so if you have, yeah, if, if you have a defect in the acidification of the urine distally, you're going to get significant, there's a significant amount of hydrogen you can't excrete. And so you get a significantly worse acidosis from a distal RTA. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing about a proximal RTA is they're all, quote, partial. Like if you had no ability to reabsorb bicarb in the proximal tubule, that's not a disease. That's called lethal. Right. I think you would, you know, if you lost 4,000 milliequivalents of bicarbonate every day, like you just don't survive that. Like your, your pH goes to five and you're dead. And so the only ones that we can call a disease are ones that where it's relatively minor and you have this drop in the TM. And I, I kind of get in ahead of us and we'll probably cover this when we go over renal tubular acidosis specifically. But I, I think that's, a, that's another issue that I think the ones that we actually see as diseases are relatively modest damages to the proximal tubule. I think I remember reading something too about Sjogren's, about having autoantibodies not just to, or thinking there's not just autoantibodies to the hydrogen ATPase, but also to carbonic anhydrase. And then, you know, if we're saying that there's no carbonic anhydrase in the distal or in the collecting duct, I don't understand how an autoantibody to carbonic anhydrase would give you a, a distal RTA. I don't think it should. I, I think I think your your logic is exactly what my logic is on that story. No, I think in Sjogren's you can have any number of you can have any number of disorders and would typically have one or the other, um, or just inflammation. So I've seen a few cases. They, those have been 
partial distal. Right. Um, I haven't seen a proximal, but I don't see why we couldn't have that. Well, think of, think of Topamax. Topamax is a carbonic anhydrous inhibitor. And that actually is a nice segue to this very unusual section of the book. It's called Carbonic Anhydrase Disequilibrium pH. And so it says that carbonic anhydrase plays this very central role in bicarbonate reabsorption. We've talked about this with the proximal nephron and how uh, it reabsorbs bicarbonate. It's constantly moving carbonic at the carbonic anhydrous is con- con- constantly converting carbonic acid to CO2 and water and it keeps the hydrogen concentration very low and that's super important to allow your hydrogen sodium exchanger to keep working and this is demonstrated by a minimal change in the pH and he's very specific he says that you have what 90% of the reabsorption in the first 2 millimeters of the proximal tubule, which I didn't know how long the proximal tubule was, but it seemed impressive that it was in the first two millimeters. So it was really the S1 segment is super important. And we had talked about this when we went over the proximal tubule. We said that the bicarbonate reabsorption or hydrogen secretion was was pushed to the very beginning of uh, uh, the proximal tubule. And we see that come back here. And one of my favorite figures for the proximal tubule was 3-1. And sure enough, you do see that that there's that big drop in the bicarbonate right away. And you also see what Roger mentioned with only 90%, um, I can't see that, only 90% being reabsorbed. And then uh, we see carbonic anhydrous in S1 and S2, but not in S3. And that's demonstrated from this experimental data uh, shown in figure 11.6. And we kind of see changes in luminal pH and in total CO2 concentration in an S2 segment and in the S3 segment. And what you see is you don't see a drop in total CO2 concentration in the S3 because you don't have carbonic anhydrase, but you do see it in the S2 where you still have it. And then the whole section was called disequilibrium pH. And finally, in the final paragraph of this, he kind of gets to the, the lead there and he talks about how if you use Henderson-Hasselbach formula on the tubular fluid in the proximal tubule, it doesn't compute. It doesn't give you the right pH. And it's because one of the assumptions of the, of the Henderson-Hasselbach formula is that we have carbonic anhydrase present. That carbonic acid is very transient and really doesn't exist. And that's how we're able to convert that equation to just CO2 and water as an equilibrium with hydrogen bicarbonate without a carbonic acid in the middle. And that assumption is not fulfilled in the S3 segment, and it results in the, the you can't use that uh, pK of 6.1, and the calculation's off by about a half a point. I thought it was kind of interesting. I'm not sure if it's clinically relevant. I'm not doing a lot of H&H calculations on the uh, tubular fluid in the S3 segment, but... yeah, Roger makes all his students do it. These two pages of the chapter are, you know, it's a pretty deep dive that Burton Rose takes, and and separating the S2 and the S3 segment of the proximal tubule. It's fascinating to read through it, how the carbonic anhydrase is so critical and the changes in, in luminal pH. But uh, I, I'll stick with my general uh, view of, of the proximal tubule and the distal acidification. I think uh, those are the more clinically relevant concepts. I do feel like there was like a paragraph here that kind of blew my mind and I just wanted to draw attention to that. This is like the second to last paragraph on 336 
where the idea is that the contribution of carbonic anhydrase can be seen by giving acetazolamide, and that the acetazolamide affects luminal carbonic anhydrase, but doesn't get to the carbonic anhydrase inside the cells. And so you only get rid of that carbonic anhydrase activity at that brush border. And that eventually that leads to, this is like a cool phrase, a bicarbonate diuresis, which is like not a way I'd ever thought about carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, but that's definitely the way I should have thought about them the entire time. So that that was like a neat way of conceptualizing what acetazolamide does. It's a bicarbonate diuresis that we're giving because it only works on the intraluminal carbonic anhydrase and lets you just push that bicarbonate down the line and get out. Yeah, one of the things I kept thinking about is we know that carbonic anhydrase, like all diuretics, has to be secreted by the proximal tubule. And if it's secreted after those first two millimeters, it's not going to have much effect. And I know Rogers brought this up earlier. He's like, it just doesn't work very well. And this may be part of the reason it doesn't work well is that by the time it's secreted, it's already kind of past the uh, the business end where it needs to be active. So they're not filtered? Acetazolamide, is, it's, it's not filtered? My impression is that all the diuretics are protein-bound and they have to be secreted in the proximal tubule, except for spiro. That's my understanding. Okay, big chapter heading, titratable acidity. This is kind of the real important concept. And one of the more complex concepts of renal uh, hydrogen handling is that we're gonna, we talked about this already. We don't get rid of the daily acid load as hydrogen. We got to smuggle it out as either titratable acids or as ammonium. Here's the first one. We're going to talk about titratable acids. He says that weak acids are filtered at the glomerulus and they act as buffers in the urine. HPO4 has a pKa of 6.8, making it ideal buffer. Here he mentions the creatinine has a pKa of 4.97. Uric acid has a pKa of 5.75. They also contribute. And that under normal conditions, titratable acids buffer 10 to 40 millicolons of hydrogen per day. And I think the important thing here is that upper limit, that 40 millicolons, may be your entire daily acid, right? And that I, I was confusing this a long time. I was always looking for these RTAs. I was always calculating the urinary anion gap, but I didn't get that if you don't have a big excess acid load, you may not be required to get rid of any ammonium. You may be able to take care of all this with your titratable acids. I think that's an, imp- that's an important aspect of that. And then he goes deep on phosphate and he walks through uh, how phosphate may bind a lot of your daily acid load. So he gives an example of uh, 50 milliequivalents of phosphate at a pH of 7.4 will exist f- uh, a ratio of 4 to 1 with 4 parts HPO4 2 minus and 1 part H2PO4 minus. So you'll have uh, of the 50 milliequivalents of phosphorus, 40 milliequivalents will be HPO4 and 10 milliequivalents will be H2PO4. So that's that's its pH of 7.4, but the urine gets acidified. And so the urine gets acidified down to 6.8. Now you're going to be, that's the pKa of uh, phosphoric acid. And so now it'll be one to one. So instead of being 40 milliequivalents of H2PO4, it'll be 25 and 25. And he, he points out that the, you'll have it buffered an additional 15 milliequivalents of hydrogen while the free hydrogen ion concentration only increased from 40 to 160 nanomoles per liter. So over 99.99% of secreted hydrogen was buffered. And then he takes it further and he says, well, what if you get down the pH of 4.8 and now all of it is converted to H2PO4 and so 39.5 milliequivalents of hydrogen are buffered. What do you got, Melanie? Okay, something that David Goldfarb taught me that I just love, which really is clear in this table. And that is why it's so important to avoid a 
sort of neutral or alkaline urine for somebody who makes calcium phosphate stones. Because when the urine is maximally acid, then there's very little phosphates that's divalent. And then when your urine is is less acid, there's more phosphate that's divalent that can bind to calcium. And so then that makes you more prone to calcium phosphate precipitation. Melanie, I want to understand the thing you just said that about the calcium phosphate stones a little better because it sounds really cool. And the goal then is in someone who has a propensity to form calcium phosphate stones, shoot for a more acidic urine so there's no more HPO4 2 minus around. You can say shoot for, but the problem is that these patients are... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we typically can't control it. I guess it really, ex- yeah. to me, it explains why they're so prone to have calcium phosphate precipitate in the less acid urine. Um, I, so maybe I didn't I feel like I, because no, no, that's it's totally, very hard. It's, I mean, years ago, I, I believe this would be before my time, people did try and acidify the urine of folks who have alkaline urine, but I think that that has too many side effects. If you have alkaline urine, it's because you can't acidify your urine. So you're giving, it's not going to work. You'll just be more acidotic and still have alkaline urine. <laughs> but but I feel like the advice I give folks is drink a lot of water, cut down on your salt, and try to cut down on animal protein because animal protein is going to lead to stuff that leads to stones. It seems like that's giving the wrong advice about the animal protein, well, right? Because animal protein is going to give more acid going to lead to dropping their pH, which in theory should like help this problem, right? Or am I overthinking this? Well, this is what we do. Well, I guess it just depends on if we're talking about calcium phosphorus stones, because otherwise, no, you're right. We usually give like citrate, right? To alkalinize. Yeah. So your average patient who has calcium stones are typically most commonly a calcium oxalate. Calcium oxalate. Yeah. And the strategies that you're suggesting, the low sodium we talked about earlier will help decrease urinary calcium. And so you can still go with that. Uh, The animal protein recommendation also has to do with those stones. I think it's Mm -hmm. never a bad suggestion. It just won't help you the way you might hope in this situation. He also has a really nice piece on on, uh, how to take care of these patients, but it's just very challenging. These patients are going to have stones. I mean, I thought calcium phosphate stones are pretty much limited to people with acidification yeah. defects. So yeah, it's, I think really they've done studies where yes. um, yeah. patients with calcium stones and they do like bicarb or citrate and they get the urine pH up and they have less instance of stones and no real risk of developing calcium phosphate stones. But I guess if you are taking too much bicarb for whatever reason and get your urine pH really high, it's a theoretical risk, but I don't think like clinically it's something that we really see very often. Um, So it's not something that I typically do counsel my patients on. Risk factors for calcium phosphate stones include an elevated urine pH and hypercalciuria. Although the supersaturation of calcium phosphate is dependent on urine pH, most patients also have hypercalciuria of more than 200 milligrams per day. In a patient with calcium phosphate stones, efforts should be made to modify these two risk factors. High urine pH can be seen in patients with an active UTI, and this should be treated appropriately. Lowering urine pH can be accomplished through increasing urine volume or reducing ammoniogenesis by changes in your diet. Urine acidification can be done through ascorbic acid, but be careful about increasing urine oxalate levels, L-methionine, and a medication called methenamine hippurate, which is used for patients with recurrent UTIs. The hippurate acidifies the urine and creates an environment for methenamine to convert into formaldehyde, which kills the bacteria in the urine. Reduction of urine calcium can be done through reduction of dietary sugar and salt, 
potassium citrate, which chelates urine calcium, and thiazides. And even in patients with normal calciuria, thiazides can help to lower the supersaturation of calcium phosphate. There's concern about treating patients with potassium citrate and increasing the urine pH and precipitating the risk of calcium phosphate stones. The pKa of H2PO4- to HPO4-2- is around 6.8 to 7.2, so increasing your urine pH above this value could theoretically increase your risk of calcium phosphate stones. Patients on citrate did have an increase in urine pH from an average of 5.9 to 6.5. However, in two large studies, patients on potassium citrate therapy did not have an increased risk of calcium phosphate stones and actually had a general decrease in overall stone production and recurrent stones. Additionally, urine citrate does not seem to correlate to urine pH. Anyway, I like that figure because it helps me understand why calcium phosphate precipitates when the urine is not maximally acid. Right. That when when Goldfarb showed me that, he said, "Yeah, it's it's the when you have the divalent phosphate, it just binds with the bivalent calcium." I was like, "Oh, it, it, the light bulb came on." It was a pretty cool moment. I agree. And you can probably stretch it, Melanie, to the other clinical scenario where we think about intraluminal calcium phosphorus precipitation, which is in patients with rhabdomyolysis that may present with acute kidney injury and they might be hyperphosphatemic. And this uh, this dilemma, whether you should, if they are also acidotic, you could give them a bicarb drip, where the risk is that the filter phosphorus may actually um, find a nice environment if you're colonized the urine and, and precipitate. In fact, there are some biopsy series reports where they show calcium phosphate crystals in the tubules in patients that had uh, ATN from rapto. So it's another interesting clinical scenario where that this PKA of, of, of the phosphorus is uh, clinically relevant. Yeah, I remember years ago, uh, you, you, we used to alkalinize. The, the, the recommendations was to alkalinize for tumor lysis, same thing. And then that got taken away for that exact reason that you're saying, that if you, while it may be good for some things, it's going, it may increase renal failure by putting the urine pH higher and making calcium phosphate less soluble. So now it's, it's no longer recommended. But, and that, well, let's be very clear there, is that we were alkalinizing to prevent the precipitation of uric acid. That's what that was. Yeah. And we got a much better tool than alkalinization in rasburicase. If you want to prevent uric acid precipitation, you give rasburicase and you drop that uric acid to nearly zero. And once you remove that problem, then now you only have the, the problem with the calcification, right? I think this is almost a, a result of a better tool than alkalinization coming around. I'm not so sure. I mean, I think that while, while alkalinization was, the point of these alkalinization was good for uric acid, it was bad for calcium phosphate. Right. And we got a better tool for uric yeah. acid. Yeah, it's only $50,000 a dose, but it is much better. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a miracle drug. Oh, yeah. It takes the uric acid. I didn't realize it was that expensive. When you see a, a molecule going from 13.7 to zero undetectable, it's, uh, it doesn't get yeah. better than that. I love rasburicase too. Yeah. And but yeah, and and, and rhabdo is the, what example that I was presenting, where we don't have a resbiricus equivalent uh, to get rid of myoglobin molecules. But excellent. The last two points in the titratable acid, uh, cool ones. Uh, Melanie kind of touched on this: is that when you have metabolic acidosis, or maybe it was Roger, when you have metabolic acidosis, you get decreased. Phosphate reabsorption, the proximal tubule. So you have more of this phosphate being delivered distally, increasing the ability to ha- uh, generate this titratable acid, which is exactly what you'd expect to happen. It's exactly what does happen. It's very cool. Love that. 
And then the last one was an example of DKA. We talked about the identity of the of your titratable acids. We said it's uh, creatinine. We said it's uric acid. We said it's primarily phosphate. But in the case of DKA, beta-hydroxybutyrate comes into play. It has a pKa of 4.8. And remember, these pKa sound very, very low. But remember, urine pH gets down that low, right? Urine pH is going to get within one point of 4.8 pretty pretty reliably. And uh, Burton Rose mentions that that can uh, allow you to buffer up to 50 milliequivalents of hydrogen a day with the beta-hydroxybutyrate. So cool kind of... Uh, not something that you would think of as another tetratable acid, but one shows up with DKA. I never thought about that. And I think it's really interesting because one of the arguments, there's a lot of literature about the fact that we give way too much fluid in DKA and you lose your anions. And the anions, if you don't lose them, they're potential sources of base because just like lactate and citrate and acetate, they can go back and, and, and make bicarb. And there's editorials written on giving all this fluid for DKA. And what you're doing is when you get rid of your anion gap, it's going to take longer to fix your acidosis because you don't have those anions to make bicarb out of. But in a way, there's a little bit left here that some of those in the urine, maybe 50 milliequivalents of, of can be a source of it by serving as a titratable acid. I think that was, I'd never heard of that before. So I think that's that was very cool to me. I'm still struggling with that because don't you think of those as sort of non-reabsorbable anions and with those, you're going to lose potassium, which we know happens, and um, and maybe sodium too, and that may contribute to volume depletion and DKA. I didn't think about it beyond that. I'm just, you know, if he says it can, you could uh, excrete 50 milliequivalents of acid a day by using them as titratable acid. I think you know that's that's as far as I went with it. But I suppose if you hook it up with a hydrogen ion, you don't have to hook it up with a sodium. So, uh, and the last thing I want to cover tonight because we are closing in on two hours is this, the ammonium handling, because I learned ammonium handling and what he dismissively calls the classic, what he called it, he called it the classic, uh, it is now clear that this model represents an oversimplification. And I want to say, but you taught me this oversimplification in the yellow book. (laughs) So what he says is that the ability to excrete hydrogen ions as ammonium adds an important degree of flexibility to renal acid base regulation because the rate of ammonium production and excretion can be varied according to physiologic needs. And he leans into this. He's like, Titratable acid is great, but when you have a significant acid load, you can't ramp it up significantly. We talked a little bit about decreasing phosphate reabsorption in the proximal tubule, but that's not very flexible. And the way the body adapts to a significant acid load is by generating ammonium for excretion, and that gets rid of a lot of the daily acid load or whatever this increased acid load. So when you have a challenge to get rid of acid load. We don't increase titratable acid. That's kind of a fixed contribution. The big change is we ramp up our ammonium excretion. And he, got, he first he says that it's kind of weird that ammonia would be useful because it's got a pKa of 9.0, which sounds way out of bounds, but that there's a, a concept of ion trapping that soon as ammonia gets secreted into the tubular fluid, which is very acidic, it immediately is converted to ammonium. And so the ammonia concentration essentially goes to zero, which allows more ammonia to be uh, secreted into the into the tubular fluid. Josh, you look like you want to say something. I thought this was so cool. This is like a buffer cup that continues to refill itself. It never runs dry. And so it's like for every 
freely diffusible ammonia ion that crosses the membrane into the tubular lumen. It, lumen, it immediately captures a uh, hydrogen ion and then just disappears. It's no longer uh, like a, in, in that chemical equilibrium of keeping more ammonia a, uh, molecules out of the tubular lumen. So you can keep moving ammonia ions and ammonia molecules into the lumen. They keep sucking up hydrogen ions and they never run out. I thought that was so neat. Very cool. Agreed. Yeah, this is, again, the fundamental difference between this mechanism and what happens with the hydrogen secretion that occurs in the proximal tubule that, as I discussed earlier, the hydrogen that comes out through the antiporter ends up uh, getting back into the cell uh, and leads to bicarb reabsorption, not net acid loss. Whereas here, you have a hydrogen ATPase that gets out into the lumen and finds this ammonia that has been diffused into the lumen, forms ammonium, and um, then you get uh, acid excretion. It's very, very uh, different processes. I feel like I never understood why ammonium was a big deal until like I got to this like idea. This this makes sense to me. And then the other thing, and this and the, and this is part of the non classical representation that he dismissively points to, is he says that the production of ammonia, the 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 whole key of this thing is that we can generate this ammonium when we need to. The generation of ammonium from glutamine itself generates alpha-ketoglutarate, and the metabolism of alpha-ketoglutarate generates two bicarbonates. So in the proximal tubule, in the, re- in the response to uh, acidosis, you're going to turn glutamine into ammonium, which is NH4+. Plus, and that process is going to generate two bicarbonates that are going to be added to peripheral circulation. He even very specifically mentions that it's going to be exits the proximal tubule via that uh, sodium bi- uh, three bicarbonate transporter that we talked about earlier. And so in the response to metabolic acidosis, your body's going to generate more ammonium and that's going to generate more bicarbonate. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's kind of the newer, like that, I wasn't taught that form, that method of where how ammonium generates or neutralizes uh, metabolic acidosis. I always thought just that you secrete uh, ammonia into the tubular fluid, which get, get, grabs hydrogen. I have learned it later on in my career as well, and it has exploded this field, this concept of acidosis leading to renal uh, ammonia genesis has many layers. How that happens involves activation of a variety of enzymes that are involved in the process of generating the ammonium, or ammonia and then uh, transporters that allow the ammonium to be uh, moved um, through the right, So the ammonium cell. is generated in the proximal tubule and then it exits the cell through your uh, sodium hydrogen exchanger. And, and Melody had talked about this. He says ammonium is, is uh, what do you call it? Promiscuous? A promiscuous. The promiscuous, promiscuous yeah, ammonium. Because, That's right. And it, because it seems like it can sneak out on the sodium hydrogen exchanger in the proximal tubule as um, sneaking out as hydrogen. And then when we get down to uh, the loop, it's sneaking out on the sodium potassium two chloride transporter as potassium. Yep. And I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's the master of disguises. Yeah. It can look like anything. Mm-hmm. I was still kind of unclear in the sodium proton antiporter if the ammonium goes through in the place of the proton or if the ammonium like dissociates into a proton that goes across and the ammonia grows across separate and they kind of meet up on the other side. Yeah. 
I feel like people are kind of, I don't I know. Think, yeah, but I either way, I remember David Viner talking about this, uh, and he, I think he proposed that both things could be happening. There's evidence for both that ammonium comes out in replacing the hydrogen, and there is also some uh, evidence of ammonia passage along with the hydrogen coming mm-hmm. uh, with sodium. So this is really throwing me for a loop because, you know, I always thought an ammonium was. Each ammonium would be, you know, one bicarb. And now it's only a third. It generates two other bicarbs for every ammonium. And the each ammonium is what whatever bicarb generation, only a, th- a third of it's from the ammonium itself. And you get two extra ones? Well, the thing is that it's not in this chapter, but again, going back to what I learned from uh, reading some work from David Viner is that what they, they, it's not discussed here that when ammonia is produced, uh, a lot of that is secreted uh, into the lumen, but it's also some ammonium that gets uh, transported through the basolateral side into the peritubular capillary. So we have circulating ammonium uh, and comes from the same ammoniogenesis. And what determines how much goes to the ap- uh, lumen, how much goes to the peritubular capillary may vary depending on the pH, extracellular pH. But the, the point is that the, when the ammonia goes into the peritubular capillary, it's going to end up being metabolized into uh, by the liver and actually consumes bicarb. So if you just look at the bi- ammonium that gets secreted, yes, it's two molecules, but it's also some ammonia getting reabsorbed that consumes a bicarb. So it cancels that a little bit. So maybe that's why it's at the end uh, closer to a one-to-one ratio. Oh, you just saved me from uh, retirement. That's also why <laughs> I really hate ammonia genesis because it like i just always gets i'm like still confused <laughs> i read this chapter i'm still confused like no i don't understand why does ammonia have to be protonated and then depronate like why does a kidney do this weird thing where it diffuses ammonia and then it makes ammonium again and then it diffuses ammonia again for a net effect of just still peeing out one ammonium like i just don't understand why it does that it just it seems very complicated to me for no good reason yeah well, Amy, I'm exactly in the same boat. I, I have. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, to, you might just be describing yeah, how everyone else. I know, but to be general. honest, like I really think that this is one of the things that we touched on earlier. That this is a, a very complex mechanism. That it's just like, oh, thank God that it works. But the issue is like, well, obviously, when there's like, for example, an AKI and ATN, and and you have impaired ammonia genesis, that this is one of those things that we realize like just how severe it can be when when this system doesn't work. I mean, it's good to have these you know and and I, I think it's important that we go through these layers but it's um you know some of it does get lost in, in its complexity and I think it's just important to recognize this how important it is because in the disease state when you don't have this you see just how important it is yeah and a- Amy I, I have this question you know so if if the kidney is making something and, and gets it out in a proximal tubule why don't just doesn't go all on the nephron and, and, and gets urinated, right? And and I'm still grasping. I think every time I read this, I get a little bit closer, but I'm not fully clear uh, because uh, uh, Barton Rose here in this chapter talks about how NH3 gets lost from the lumen and, and, and you need to have this recycling of, of ammonia. But to me, the fact that ammonium can be reabsorbed through the sodium potassium 2 chloride transporter replacing the potassium 
at the end, it's kind of what triggers this recycle, right? That is the key element that doesn't allow you to get this ammonium to go all the way through the collecting duct because it's being trapped by this proximal tube, uh, by this uh, loop in the loop of Henley. Mm, yeah, I just don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's... I'm with team Amy. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I just thinking about it too simply, isn't it just... Um, the idea, again, that the distal nephron is what does the fine-tuning, that you set everything up, you set the stage, mm-hmm. and then whatever you actually want to do, you'll accomplish in the distal nephron. Is that too simple? I mean, we, we, I think we use exactly the same uh, summary when we talked about water handling, right? That we that the kidney does what it does to dilute the urine all the way to the cortical acting duct, and at that point it says, okay, do what you need to do and come up with the final osmolality. In a way, this is a similar uh, situation, right? Like you said, Melanie. I don't have much else on this. I'm going to call it for the night. We're going to resume here next month, and we'll get through kind of the regular for the regulation. You want to say something uh, that kind of ending the episode and saying that we'll continue? Oh wait! By the way, I want you to know. I guess even though we were sort of a lot of moaning on the WhatsApp. We only had two references last time, and for me, that was like a force to get a second. And I have 17 already oh for tonight. Because <laughs> we don't understand it. Yeah. So I guess we're making a lot of connections. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank I got to get some sleep. This is great. We'll set something up. Uh, I will give, uh, actually, I'm going to stop my recording right now.